In our series that we're walking through, that we're calling Living Sacrifices from Romans 12, Paul has taken what he was teaching in Romans 1 through 11, and in 12 begun to add practical application. Now when I say that, I don't want to make it sound like doctrine and truths don't have practical application, because there are practical applications all the way through Romans 1 through 11. But what he does in chapter 12 is he begins to take all of those things that he was teaching, the incredible truths you find there, and begins to paint a picture of what someone who believes those truths and lives out those truths looks like. He's painting a picture. He's saying this is what, if you really believe all of the things that I've written here in the first 11 chapters of this book, this is what you will look like. This is how you will live. This is what God promises for your life. And in chapter 12, he begins to teach in, in a concentric circle form because that's the way we grow as Christians. He starts in the middle. He starts on the inside. And as Christians, we are changed from the inside out. And so he starts in verses 1 through 3 and begins to teach about our relationship to God because everything else hinges on our personal, intimate relationship with God. That's where we have offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto Him as your spiritual act of worship. Where he tells us to not be conformed to the world, be transformed by God's word. Let it change your worldview. Those are the inner circle. And then in verses 4 through 13, he begins to expand that circle and say, Now this is how you act to those within the body of Christ, to those in the church, to those who, who we are brothers and sisters of. He tells us in verse 5 that we are connected to the body one to another. So no matter where we are, us in Grace Baptist Church, we are connected because we are part of the same body. So while we are blessing them, we are blessing just another arm and an extension of the body of Christ. And he tells us in those passages how we're to treat one another. We call that defining an authentic Christian community. What church should look like? Everybody wants to complain about what church is today. So many people want to uh, go out and talk about how the church is dying and the, and the church is failing and the church is messing up. Listen, God's not done with the church. And if we could ever get back to the principles that he teaches us here in verses 4 through 13, then all of a sudden we will become a light shining in this dark culture that we're living in today. And then he begins to expand it. And we started that last week in verse 14 through 21. To the people that are outside the church, to the people that are not followers of Christ. And the incredible thing is, in verse 14, as he begins to expand that circle, he picks probably the most difficult people that you and I will ever encounter in our lives to start with. Instead of dealing with the easy people that we interact with all the time, he started with how we are supposed to treat those who are the hardest, most difficult people we encounter. He said those who persecute us, those who betray us, those who hurt us those who disappoint us, those who walk away from us. And this teaching that we started last week, we called it radical because it is radical. What's more radical in this culture than for us to learn to bless those who persecute us? Not curse them, bless them, encourage them, lift them up. It was so radical that Jesus taught these same principles over and over and over again in some of his greatest sermons. Not only did he teach them, he lived it out. He exampled it. So it's important for us to get to the place where we understand this is a truth the church has to grasp. And it's also one of the hardest commands you and I will ever do as a Christian. 
what separates the casual cultural Christian and the Christian who is committing themselves to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you see, you can't, and I told you this last week, and I'm reiterating because it was a hard lesson for me. So maybe you need to hear a little bit more again. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it in your own power. You cannot bless somebody who is mean to you, somebody who has hurt you in your own power and strength because your flesh wants revenge. And your flesh wants to retaliate. And your flesh wants paybacks. But when we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, when we allow the Holy Spirit to have control of every area of our life, all of a sudden we realize that instead of retaliation, we're in the business of redemption. We're in the business of taking that which was once considered not valuable and making it valuable. Why? Because that's the Spirit's business. See, the flesh wants revenge. The flesh wants to to feel good when we see those people who hurt us hurt. But the Spirit wants to see those people be reconciled with God. The Spirit wants to see those people be redeemed the same way we were redeemed. So if that's what the Spirit wants and the Spirit is in control of our lives, then you and I have no other option. Now, I share with you that that's a discipline. It's not something that happens overnight, and you probably learned when you walked out of the doors last week. It's not something you can just read and go, okay, it's the truth. I'm going to bless all of those who persecute me and are mean to me and hurt me. Let's go do it. It doesn't happen that way. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes commitment. It takes practice. And the changes that come, come incrementally as the Holy Spirit. As, as you give a little bit more of yourself that you've been holding back to the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden your heart begins to change. Now last week I gave you homework. Two parts. To tell you that uh, if you tried to walk out of here and begin to practice what we talked about, then you were tested. And I didn't tell you who to go and bless because as I was teaching last week and I looked out at your faces, I realized that every one of you knew exactly who that person was that is your thorn in the flesh. Who that person is that makes your life more miserable because they're in it. Who is it that betrayed you? Who is it that hurt you? You knew who it was. And so if you tried last week to go out and begin to bless them, then I know you probably got tested. And if you can see the Holy Spirit's bruises from beating me up from all the times that I failed trying to do this. And I had two steps. I asked you, first of all, to pray for them. But not just pray for them in a normal sense, but to pray that God would bless them. That's what Paul says. But don't just pray that God would bless them because that's our normal cop-out, right? Some of you went out and you wrote, you know, okay, God bless so-and-so, roll our eyes. God bless so-and-so, roll our eyes. God bless. No, that's not, that's not what he says. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke chapter 6, 27. But I tell you, hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So here's what I ask you to do. I said, I want you to go and pray for that person in your mind, and you know who it is, Pray that God would bless them in the same way that you pray for God to bless you. How do you pray for God to bless you this week? God bless my family, protect my family, bring healing, bless us as we go. I wanted you to pray. No, I didn't. Paul did. Did you go try it? Hard. And, and sometimes when you start praying for those people, that God to bless them, and, and you pray one day and it's hard, and the next day it gets a little better, and there's incremental change. And I said last week, uh, you may hate them at the end of this month 10% less than you hated them today, but that's a change. 
And next week or next year, it may be 30%. And the more you give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to change you, who knows what He wants to do? I asked you to pray to bless them. But then I said there was a second part. And that was the hard part. But you see the word bless here comes from the Greek word eulogia. And eulogia means two words, speak well. It's where we get our English word eulogy. And so what Paul is saying here is he is saying you need to speak well, not just to God, but around that person who persecutes you, that person who hurts you instead of cursing them. And cursing them is not curse words. I know all of us, you want to curse them. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about wishing bad things would happen to them. Because isn't that our natural flesh? Doesn't when somebody hurts us and betrays us and does something, don't we want, don't, man, I'd love to get, you know, I used to pray, Lord, please let me be there when they get it. (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. That's what the flesh wants. Paul says, no, instead of cursing them, instead of wishing bad things happen, and and instead of somebody coming up to you at work and go, hey, do you know so-and-so? Well, yes, I do. Let me tell you a little bit about them, okay? No. He said he wanted you to speak well of them to others. That instead of cursing them around others, instead of saying bad things about them around others, we are called to eulogos, speak well. Now, I have to tell you, personally, that took a lot of creativity on my part this week to try to speak well of some people in my life that I needed to bless. Because it was hard. But it's something that's not an option for us. And, and I promise you, we could probably spend the rest of the service having those of you that try to do this give testimonies about how hard it is. But I hope that some of you, if you were like me, could give a testimony about how much it, it actually began to change, how you felt. You noticed your heart changing. And even more, you probably noticed a little bit more about yourself. Because you see, the whole idea behind learning to bless others is because God's trying to shine a light on us to show us just who we really are. And just how we really treat people. Now the good news for those of us that, that struggled, the good news for those of us that, that tried or are going to try, is that Paul doesn't just leave us here in verse 14 by saying bless others. He gives us a couple of examples how. He gives us a, a couple of ways that we can sow the field, prepare the ground, that we can prepare our hearts to be able to do what he's asking us to do. And I told you uh, several weeks ago when we started in verse 9 that he t- starts a new style of teaching in verse 9 that runs to verse 21. And in the Greek, it's called paranesis. It's teaching or, or, or writing style, and it's short, quick statements that don't have any uh, expounding on it. They're like maxims or what I told you last week, like a meme. It's just some quick truths that he just kind of rifles machine guns out there at us. What most of the time is he gives a key statement and then he adds a bunch of quick illustrations underneath it to back up that key statement. He did it in verse 9 when he was talking about the church. He said, you and I are to love each other sincerely. And then in verses 10, 11, 12, 13, he showed us how. And here in verse 14, as we get on the outside circle of those people that persecute us, those people outside the church, he said, you are to bless them and not curse them. That's the key statement. And then in verses 15 and 16, he tells us how we can begin to try to do that. And so this morning, we're going to look at a couple of those. Now, I'm not going to do four of them, and I'm not going to talk about all four, because I want us to take time this morning to hear Pastor Mark. And and, uh, so you'll have to come back next week if you want to get the next two to prepare to learn how to bless. But what it will do is, since I'm only giving you two, it'll give you a, a chance 
to, to try it out, to practice it, to, to apply it to your lives. Because these are two very important principles that will allow you, if you struggle, to bless those who have been mean to you. So let's read verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. For rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, did you hear the four quick statements there? Four quick statements in two verses. Short, real quick truths that back up what he just said in verse 14. He is giving us some illustrations. He's giving us some ways for those of us to treat people who hurt us. In a blessed manner. Now, it's understood that we're already supposed to treat people in the church this way. So he's not talking about people in the church. That goes back under verse 9, love should be sincere. We already, these things that he's giving here should already be a part of us. We shouldn't even have to worry about the people in the church that persecute us, the people in the church that are mean to us, or the people in the church that, that have hurt us and betrayed us, because we're supposed to forgive them and love them the way 1 Corinthians 13 teaches So he's talking about people that are outside. And as we get to these first two, I want you to ask yourself, Holy Spirit, right now, just open my eyes to show me if these things are a barrier that are keeping me from blessing those who hurt me. So what does he say in verse 14? He says, we need to rejoice with those that rejoice, mourn, or some of your translations say weep, with those who weep or mourn. The first principle that we need to do, that we need to apply to our lives, is we need to practice empathy. Now, empathy is a word that most of us use a whole lot, but don't understand it. See, there's a big difference between sympathy and empathy. You know what the difference is, right? Sympathy is feeling sorry for somebody. Empathy is feeling sorrow with somebody. You see, empathy moves beyond the superficial. It's learning to be sensitive to the emotions and feelings of others. It's it's engaging people to the point that you can see what's going on in their heart and not just see it, you join in with it. You supplant your feelings. You supplant your emotions. You supplant your needs so that you can come alongside and lift up the load that they're carrying. That's empathy. It's easy to fall in the trap and call it empathy when we go to somebody that's faced a lost family member, faced a death, faced a tragedy. We throw out these little superficial platitudes. There's those words that we always fall back on. Paul's talking about something much deeper. Paul's talking about connecting with one another at the heart level. Connecting and relating to what they're feeling. And let me just give you a little help here. Most of the time, when we encounter mean people in our lives, we don't know what they've been going through in their own lives. It's easy for us to encounter somebody and they're mean or they're hateful or they're hurtful, and we want to turn around and blast them. We don't know where they're walking. We don't know what they've just experienced. We don't know where they're going in their life circumstances and situations. I've heard people say that our lives are like garbage trucks. We go around through the day and through the week and through the months, and we just pile it all in. And we just take it in, and we just take it in, and we just take it in, and we take it in. And finally, the truck gets full. And when the truck gets full, we have no control over where we empty it, do we? 
And finally something pushes over the edge and we pull the lever and all the trash that we've been carrying around for a week just pours out onto somebody. And most of the time that person had nothing to do with all the trash that we've been carrying around. For us to get empathetic helps us to to recognize that people around us are going through struggles. Maybe that person that's betrayed you, that person that hurt you, that person that, that you think of that's a thorn in the flesh, you don't know the suffering and the struggle and the hurt and the disappointment that they've been going through. And maybe it will help you learn to be able to bless them by realizing that they might be hurting themselves. Empathy is something that, that, that we are called as, as believers in Christ, to not only practice, but to live. Now, he gives two extreme illustrations. He says, we're to celebrate with those who celebrate, and we're to mourn with those who mourn. Now, which one of those do you think would be the most difficult? Most of us say, well, mourn, right? Not for most of us. For most people probably in here, it is harder for us to celebrate with those who celebrate. Because one of your friends, a neighbor, your, your co-worker, girl at, at school comes in and says, guess what, I, I want a new car. I got a job promotion. Somebody just out of the blue did this for me. I got my meal paid for. And we want to celebrate, but our human nature says what? You don't deserve that, right? See, our human nature wants to fall back on resentment and envy and jealousy. And instead of celebrating with people, what we do is we, well, it never happens to me. I never win anything. I never get a job promotion. And so in celebrating, what, have you ever been around those people? You're celebrating and everybody's excited in the office and all of a sudden Debbie Downer comes in and she, she just pours out all of her garbage on everybody else and the whole mood just goes, Vroom. We all do it. We do it in our homes. We do it in our families. We do it around people. And we do it around people outside in the workplace. He said we need to learn to celebrate. We need to learn to leave our mess and all of our envy and jealousy and all that stuff at home and learn to celebrate with those who are celebrating. Because the more you celebrate with those who are celebrating, you begin to see how God is blessing people all around you. The reason some of you don't see all the blessings that are happening in your life on an everyday basis is because you're so resentful and envious and jealous that it's not happening to you when it really is. You just don't open your eyes to see all that you've been blessed with that you can't celebrate with others. It's a matter of adjusting your mood, adjusting your feelings to the needs of others. Now, I understand there are those out there that are always always down, always negative, always moaning, always groaning. Uh, oh, that, that's not who he's talking about. He's talking about people that truly are facing sorrow. Paul's reminding us here that if we are ever going to bless and love other people, we need to relate to what they're going through. We need, if they're crying, we need to cry with them. If they're laughing, we need to laugh with them. It means removing yourself from the equation. But the good news is back in 12 verse 1, you offered that self as a living sacrifice. So it shouldn't be any problem for you to do that. You know, in Jesus' day in the temple there, they had a, a unique custom. What they would do is the temple on holy days was always crowded. It was always packed. And so instead of everybody trying to come and go through the same place, they had people all come in one entrance and go out one exit. 
In Jesus' day, Herod's temple, anyone that was going to worship on one of the holy days would go in through the south and they would go up what's called Solomon's portico and go into the temple. And when they went into the temple, they would do whatever it's needed to be done and then everyone would leave out the northeastern corner of the temple. Just the way it went. Made it smooth, except one exception. There were Jewish families in Jerusalem who had faced great heartache and sorrow who had faced incredible disappointment, they were allowed to walk against the flow of traffic. See, where everyone else was going out, they were coming in. And when everyone else was coming in, they were going out. Why do you think they did that? So that everyone that was going into worship had to look at the face of their family and the hurt they were facing the struggles they were facing. See, I wonder how many times we just go through our everyday lives, work, school, church, grocery store, and we never look in the eyes, we never look in the face of those around us to see the suffering, to see the struggle. Listen, we don't even do it in church much less to those that are hurting us and persecuting us. Paul's saying you and I have got to begin to practice empathy. I've told many of you my testimony about this very same thing. But when I was young, I went through a lot of difficulties as a teenager. My parents were divorced. My uh, mom was diagnosed. She had diabetes all her life, but she began to have complications from diabetes when she was uh, in her late 30s. I was in my teen years and eventually had her leg amputated. She lost her eyesight, lost her job. Uh, because of that, we ended up having to put her in a nursing home. She eventually passed away. And through that whole process, I made a decision. I made a concerted effort that I was going to shut down all of my emotions. I decided I didn't want to hurt anymore. I'd been disappointed and I'd been let down and I'd been blown away. So I made an effort that I was just going to stop being emotional. And for 10 years, I didn't shed a tear. I didn't cry when my mom died. I didn't cry when my grandparents died. I didn't cry when one of my best friends was killed. Oh, sure, I could, I could act sad and I could, I could smile, but, but there was nothing real. Nothing that was real inside of me. And, and I have to tell you, over time, it began to kill my marriage because I didn't have any empathy. I didn't have any emotion. It, it began to kill relationships I had. It began to kill my ministry. How am I supposed to love and care and minister to people when I can't show and empathize with them because I've shut down and hardened my heart to those things? Finally, I was overwhelmed with conviction that the reality is it was a spiritual issue. It was a spiritual problem. Because I like talking about my anger and my bitterness and my circumstances and my situation and my flesh. And the problem the Holy Spirit showed me was all of those mys no longer existed. Because Galatians 2.20 says, I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. And those mys are now His. And so I began to pray, God, break my heart. I mean, earnestly, I began to pray, God, if my marriage is going to be saved, if, my friend, if I'm going to be able to be a minister, this was 20 years ago, if I'm going to be able to last in ministry, God, break my heart. And he did. And he didn't give any warning. One Sunday morning, I was down giving an invitation, and, and a couple came down for me to pray with them, and they began to come down. And I didn't even know them. 
And the man had been diagnosed with cancer, and he came and he asked, he said, will you pray for, for me and my wife? And, and I began to pray, and as I began to pray, it was like every emotion that I'd ever held. It was like I could feel what those people were going through, and it began to pour out of me. I couldn't get through the prayer. I was so broken praying for them that I had to have people come and pray for me. And the floodgates just opened, and they've never shut down. And now... It's on the other end. I, I pray, God, please stop. Because <laughs> I'll do a wedding for people that I hardly even know, and I'm crying like a baby. I'm like, why am I crying? I don't know these people. Don't even get me started on counseling people or going to funerals. I, I, because there is such a sense of empathy because I ask God to break my heart and open myself up to the Holy Spirit that, that it, just, it, it just doesn't stop. I can't tell you how hard it is on Sundays to, to try to get through messages sometimes. Not because of what the Word says, but because as I look out into your eyes, I know some of your struggles, and I know some of your hurts, and I know where you are, and it just overwhelms me. But you know what? That's a good thing. Because what I found is that same overwhelming empathy began to overflow into people that hurt me, and people that disappointed me, and people that persecuted me. And I found myself all of a sudden praying that God would bless those people. And all of a sudden, the same people that on Monday I was cursing, that I was wishing God would just strike off the planet, that I was just saying, God, I can't take... On Thursday, I'm in my room weeping for those people. Empathy. The Bible's calling us to relate to a deeper level to the people in our lives. It's a process. And I don't say that. I didn't tell you that story to tell you that I'm super Christian now because, trust me, there's still lots of people that I have to, to get taught after. I've cursed them and afterwards the Holy Spirit comes back and knocks on my heart and said, what was that you just said? But you know, even in that, it's a learning process. Do you know even when you fail... This week when you said, I'm going to bless that person and you encountered them and they walked away and you thought, I want to wring their neck. And you walked off and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit said, that's the person. When the Holy Spirit does that, that's a time of learning. That's a chance for you to go, you're right. He says, bless those that persecute us by practicing empathy. And the last thing, and I'm almost done, is what does he say in verse 16? Live in harmony with one another. Not only do we need to practice empathy, but the second thing he tells us to do is to promote harmony. The Greek word for harmony is translated to think the same thing towards each other. The word harmony that he uses here in, in verse 16 is the same word used in Acts 4.32 to describe the early first church when it said they were in one mind and one heart. What did that mean? They were in harmony. Now let me give you a definition of what it means to promote harmony. And this doesn't come from me. It's a pastor friend of mine in Texas, David Dykes, uses this as talking about harmony. He says, promoting harmony means to be willing to sacrifice your need to be right. I'm going to say it again because I don't think you heard me. Promoting harmony means being willing to sacrifice your need to always be right. Now let me ask you a question. I want you to non-shake universal signs. Do you know anyone who always has to be right all the time? Never be wrong. They always have to have the last word. Do you know somebody like that? Anybody know somebody like that? Let me ask you a second question. 
Do you think while somebody in this room was answering that first question, they were thinking about you? <laughs> now, you couples stop elbowing your spouse, okay? <laughs> That's not fair. I can promise you nobody in here said, oh, that, yeah, that's me. Yes, Pastor, I know, it's me. I always do that, amen? I'm always right, always got the last word. That's just who I am. Because we, we don't think that. See, we have got to understand that harmony means sometimes subjugating what we want to say and what we want to do for the sake of unity. Paul's reminding us simply here that, and this is so simple, but we forget it. It takes two people to have an argument. Do you, do you recognize that? See, if one person doesn't engage in the argument, it's not an argument. Harmony is not uniformity. It's not compromise. It's not bottling up your emotions. What harmony that Paul is talking about here is understanding that there are some times that some things are more important than you being right all the time. And some things are more important than you getting the last word. Because many times we take a bad situation and make it worse when we should have listened to the Holy Spirit and shut up. Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a hard word stirs up anger. For the tongue of the wise commend knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Proverbs 15, 4, The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 15, 24, A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. You know what that means? That means we need to know when to speak and know when to shut up. Proverbs 16, 24, pleasant words are like honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. We're going to learn to practice blessing those who are mean to us, blessing those who persecute us. It means we need to promote harmony. And for that to happen sometimes, no, all the time, it means us being sensitive enough to know when to sacrifice our need to be right or our need to be heard. It's a simple thing. Every day, all around us, we are surrounded by people filled with anger, filled with revenge, filled with retaliation, overflowing with curses. But you and I are called to be different. You say we, as I said earlier, are in the redemption business. We're in the restoration business. Why? Because that's our Father and our Savior's business. And if it's His business, it's our business. Not revenge, not retaliation, redemption. And that means blessing, being empathetic, promoting harmony, even with those people that you don't like. And let me close with this. For Paul, these are more than just some scriptural words of encouragement. You see, for Paul, these are more than just principles because Paul was a walking testimony to the power of blessing someone who is cursing you. Because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7 that the very first church and the very first deacon in the very first church, his name was Stephen. First deacon, first church, first Baptist church, first Pentecostal church, charismatic, they spoke in tongues, first charismatic church of Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it. First church. They got deacons. The very first deacon they chose, a man of God named Stephen. Stephen went around ministering and helping. But while he went around ministering and helping, he preached redemption and he preached Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders got mad. They called him to trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, and said, we're putting you on trial for blasphemy. 
Stephen stood there and he preached the truth in their face. But it was the truth of love and forgiveness and redemption found in Jesus Christ. And it infuriated them. They got so mad that they drug him outside. And they began to pick up stones to stone him to death. And verse 58 of chapter 7 says that before they picked up the stones, they took off their coats and their cloaks and they laid it at the feet of a man named Saul who would later become Paul. And as Stephen begins to have those stones, and let me tell you something, if you've ever seen someone stoned to death, it's the most brutal death you can imagine. Stephen is being stoned to death and it says... That he, in verse 60, that as he fell on his knees, he cried out his last words Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them. And Saul the persecutor stood there and he heard those seeds of blessing to those who were persecuting Stephen. And those seeds of blessing became the flower of the church when Paul encountered and resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Without Stephen practicing blessing those who persecute us, and you talk about, you think you're getting persecuted, he's being stoned. Father, forgive him. Without that testimony, we may have never had Paul. Matter of fact, Augustine says the church owes Paul to the prayers of Stephen. And it's Stephen's example that makes these words I just read to you more than just words. Because let me ask you this. I wonder in your life if there's another Saul, persecutor, hurts people, mean to people, and all God's waiting for, to release His power in them, to show Himself mighty to that person, to show grace and mercy and forgiveness. All He's waiting for is one of His followers to bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with everyone, even the mean people. Let's pray.